Welcome to Fired Up Friday. I'm Gerard Papa, Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and Principal Consultant at Dynamic Resolutions Group, DRG. Have you heard the old saying, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right the first time? Well, I not only believe this, but I live it every day. My goal was to help the business world embrace it. I have process improvement and strategic planning expertise, and I seek opportunities to tackle challenges with a focus on innovation, efficiency, and quality. I have over 25 years of customer service experience in the hospitality, retail, IT, and healthcare industries. Justin. Gerard, how are you? How are you? I'm great. I'm glad you could join us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So we're, we're going to talk about employee investment uh, for long-term success. Yeah. And I am pleased to have uh, Justin Zakia join me. I think uh, one of the things I will always be thankful for is that when we worked together, you were always very supportive of me uh, in our work environment, which, as you know, was not the best. Uh, so I will always be grateful for that. It was uh, so a suboptimal work environment, but I think the work that you and people like you do is super valuable and it's a bunch of skill sets that I don't have. And uh, so I'm very appreciative of them. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself and give some background? Tell us like where you are today and what you're doing. Sure. My name is Justin Zakia. I'm the uh, Chief Administrative Officer of Northern Virginia for Ortho Virginia. So Ortho Virginia is the largest independent um, orthopedic practice in the Commonwealth of Virginia and I believe top 10 largest in the country. Um, and we break uh, the Commonwealth up into four regions. So my area of responsibility is Northern Virginia, um, which uh, covers about Alexandria, Springfield, out to uh, Loudoun County. Um, we got about 11 offices, uh, 40 doctors, um, and uh, six or 700 employees um, in Northern Virginia, uh, about 2,000 in the state. Awesome. I could I do more, but that's probably enough. No, that's great. That's great. Um, and I, I think, again, one of the things uh, that I do think we have in common, we do see the world the same way as far as organizations go. And what I think the keys are to success for organizations, although surprisingly, a lot of organizations ignore those things. Uh, and one of those things that I think, and I think, again, you agree, is employee engagement. Uh, I think, as Branson, who said, uh, happy employees make happy customers. And for whatever reason, that concept is still difficult for organizations to grasp. But to me, that is probably the key to success, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely one of them. You know, uh, I don't know that they uh, fail to grasp it. Um, I don't know, it almost seems like they're trying to grasp it. I think the biggest energy or the biggest uh, impediment to embracing that kind of philosophy is, you know, the past. That's not how we've done it. We've done it this way before, especially in the medical world. You and I work together yes. in a medical practice. I work in a medical practice. The medical industry in general is a far more backwards looking industry than forwards because um, in the rosy heyday of the past, everything was super easy. We all made tons of money and everything was great. That's kind of, uh, that's kind of the way it's, uh, perceived. And, um, 
you know, happy employees wasn't really a necessity of that, uh, that previous success, um, nor, by the way, was happy customers. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about the, the medical business is that in general, um, you know, the customers come to you, they stand in line, they wait in waiting rooms, right? Um, yep. We don't have big waiting rooms filled with doctors waiting to see a patient, right? We have big waiting yep. rooms full of patients. I always like to compare them to airlines, you know, airlines and um, healthcare practices in the past kind of uh, took their, I think, customers um, for granted. Luckily, in both of those industries, uh, an increase of competition and awareness amongst uh, customers is forcing the good players to step up their game and uh, the the mediocre players look more and more antiquated. So yeah, that's yeah. such a great point. I, I, I want to I want to flush that out a little bit more because I, I always say I use the term like, what are you going to do about it? Like an airline, for example, what are you going to do? Take a bus? Right. right? And I think they have that. And I think the healthcare, and I've been in four different industries now. I'm now working in the pension pension industry. And I can say this because I have other industries to compare it to, is the least customer-focused industry that I've ever been in. Um, and I think part of it was because they're the knowledge holders. Um, you can't question necessarily a doctor or a physician because you don't have the experience to do that. And I think older generations, maybe not so much our generation now, I think this is kind of where we're starting to see a change. Older generations, like my grandmother, whatever the doctor told her, she would do and not question it. Uh, and it's not always, it was not always in her best interest or even the patient's best interest at times because uh, there was a disconnect. And I think that that's where it's starting to change because you have Google, you can get information, you can question physicians, uh, and frankly, you should. Yeah, I, I think you should. And most of the best doctors that I know think that you should, you know, at the very least, because I'm sure in your grandmother's day, the doctor was telling her to do what, what he thought was right for her. But at the very least, when right. you only have one mind involved in a decision, it leads to tunnel vision. The more minds you have involved in a decision, even if there's an imbalance of knowledge, it leads to better consideration of the options and better decisions. And the, the best doctors that I know now welcome that kind of shared decision-making process. And actually one of their frustrations is when a patient comes and says, I don't care doc, just tell me what to do. Cause they're like, you know, there are lots of options. We could do this. It's more aggressive and there's more risks, but there might be more reward or uh, we could do this and it's more conservative and you might have to change your lifestyle, but there's less risk. And they want that kind of two-way interaction. I think the other thing that sets healthcare and airlines uh, apart um, from many other businesses is the tremendously intense um, capital investment that's required, right? So the town has one hospital. You got a problem, you're going to the hospital, right? don't have right. at least in the past you didn't have 50 different airlines to choose from because airplanes are expensive yep. and even now that there are a lot of airlines you still have to hope that they go to an airport that's near you so um but as with everything else um prices are coming down prices are getting more transparent you know when we were kids you called a travel agent they put you on one of the three airlines now kayak can search 100,000 um possible flights for you in a second and you can make the decision whether you want to drive to Cleveland to save $300 or fly out of you know, Buffalo for more, whatever it is that you want to do. And that, that technology yeah. is coming to healthcare uh, very, very rapidly. 
Yeah, that's another another really good point. Uh, dead on. I think that's part of what's driving it. I think uh, a couple stats just for like employee engagement. You know, back to you know our topic is, and this is where I think organizations don't realize this is because when we look at cost and revenue, you know, a lot of times you put what I would consider value into things because you're getting something out of it. In times we do a lot of things and we might not get that much out of it and it's not tracked or measured. And there's a, there's a talent culture found that increasing employee engagement investments by 10% can increase profits by $2,400 per employee per year. And that can make a significant impact on your business. And I think those are the things that more organizations need to be aware of, of what that payoff is going to be as a result of investing in your Sure. And, and we talk about that all the time. I'm not familiar with that statistic. That number sounds fine to me. I think the, the, the bit, most important take-home lesson from that is dollars that you spend or time that you spend or energy or you spend or effort that you spend in trying to uh, get your employees engaged. And what does engagement mean? I don't know. To me, it means feeling like they're owners of the business, feeling like they have a personal yep. stake and have tied a portion of their identity to the success of whatever enterprise they're involved in. And the more that you have employees feel that way, the more employees feel it and the more that the employees feel it, um, the more successful your enterprise will be under the exact same thing that we were talking about with your grandma and her doctor, which is that now we have 700 minds trying to figure out how to optimize this process or grow this business or serve these patients instead of two, you know? Um, the, the worst thing I he hate uh, to hear when I ask people, why do you do that? Is we've always done it this way. I don't like that. I think, yeah. uh, well, let's stop doing yeah. it and see what happens. That's my gut reaction to that answer, right? The second worst thing right. I hate is, well, it didn't make sense at the time, but six years ago, I got really yelled at for not doing it. So now I do it because I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, so then let's definitely stop it. And we'll give you an award for, uh, for volunteering this information to stop it. Having people ask themselves a hundred times a day, why am I doing this? You know, for any portion of their job uh, has value. Um, the least value perhaps is, oh, now I remember why I'm doing this. I'm re-engaged in this task because it's important and I know why it's important. Perhaps more valuable is, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'll ask somebody, oh, now I've learned something about my job and some aspect of how it makes things better. I'm now more engaged with it and I will work harder at it. And then perhaps the best in my mind is, holy cow, I don't have to do this. This actually adds no value. I can take the precious resource that is my time and effort and energy and attention and point it in another direction and do something that does add value. We have now increased the total value of the organization by doing that. So, yeah, that's uh, another, you know, another great point. I can tell you from my experience when I go into a project uh, to, to improve process, I, ask that question and i the the most common is is we've always done it that way or never thought about it and i got an answer on the last last project that i was doing last year and i never heard this one and and this is going to go into my catalog the hall of fame i asked someone why they were doing this and they said tradition. <laughs> and i and i just love that answer because there was no real thought it was just well tradition it's like every thanksgiving 
you um, I, I you might have heard this story where they they asked why a, a great uh, the daughter of a family with a grandmother and a great grandmother and a mother cooking on Thanksgiving asking why they cut off each end of the ham and she's like well it's tradition and so they started asking the the elder you know why did you do that well i was taught that way my grandmother did that and they get to the great grandmother and they asked her why did she do that and it was because the pan that she had when she was like 22 <laughs> years old was so small that she had to cut the ends off right but that had been passed on for generation to generation and they just thought that was something you did but there was the reason no longer existed you know, past that because they had a, they had enough pan that was. Large it's a great example, and it's and it's a yeah. and it highlights what is the single most empowering tool and engaging tool for any employee. And as a manager, the most valuable thing that you can give them is the gift of uh, why, empowering them to ask why, and then you have to teach yeah. them to ask why. You know, everything you do in a day, you should say, "Why am I doing this?" Every now and then, and you have to revisit it over time because circumstances change over time. Yeah. Now that I've gotten a new pan, when I'm cutting the ends off the ham, maybe I can say, oh, this is why I did it. So now I'll stop. And um, tradition, I think, is a great thing and a powerful thing and actually has a lot of cultural value um, if you understand that you're doing it for tradition's sake. But that doesn't mean you don't periodically ask why. Yeah, you can't check it. And, you know, it's 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 gets back to, again, this the why is a critical thought, right? It's critical thinking. It's not just hearing one idea and then taking that uh, word and that's it. It's thinking through, it's taking various sources, taking your knowledge and experience and your education and then coming to a decision. I think this has also been clearly stated is that the more diverse uh, an organization is, the more successful it is because it has different perspectives that you might not normally get that's going to give you better solutions because you have different ideas generated from different areas that people might not have ever thought a hundred percent correct right and and if you look at any you know well-regarded journal scientific publication forever it's very rare to see great discovery made by blank right it's a team of people yeah. and oftentimes those yeah. teams of people have really weird different names um and so with the same philosophy that we've been talking about that 600 minds is better than two minds um, if those 600 minds are all exactly the same and all shared exactly the same experiences and all have the exact same values, they're not nearly as powerful as 600 minds that are from extremely diverse backgrounds because they're going to approach uh, the same problem from 600 different points of view. And you'll get a more comprehensive 3D image of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the two really two concepts that I think drive what, you know, what we're talking about is. First of all, you know, getting the employees engaged and, and understanding that employee engagement is tied to the success of your organization, whatever, however you define success, right? We always think revenue, but there's other, there's other metrics. Uh, and then number two, the employees understanding that when they're engaged, when they're tied to their job, that they're driving a certain aspect, because when you're down at a certain level, sometimes you you don't understand the connection between what you're doing and the strategic direction of the organization. And I think it's important to connect those. I think it's, it's almost and one of the most important things that the leader um, can do. 
uh, for an organization is to make sure that every single person knows how they contribute to the mission. Uh, and I want to talk about both the things you just said, because they're both very important. Right. And, and when we when we try to engage employees, there's, there's a couple of different ways to talk about it. Um, you know, some people would say, I want to I want to engage you. I want to force you to be engaged. I kind of prefer to think of it as getting out of the way of your being engaged, because once you create a place that's safe for people to ask why most of good self-motivated people are going to want to do the best job that they can. I think people have kind of an inherent desire to have everything that they do produce value. They're just either lacking in knowledge or freedom uh, to accomplish that. And so it like, really right. comes down to setting a culture, uh, a managerial culture. And the most powerful um, agents of any culture are the middle management level, level, the people, you know, the people that everyone works for or the people one stage above that, because those are the folks that create that environment where, oh, you have a question about why you're doing your job. I'm either going to talk to you and talk it through with you and tie it to something bigger, or I'm going to say, because I said so. And that, you know, that's a, a big culture stifling um, phrase right that. But the other yes. thing, the, the tying it to your action to the larger mission, that, that culture, that comes from the top. And it's super important. And there are areas that do that very, very well. The United States military, for example, you know, I learned my management in the Navy. And at some point, I was a naval aviator. At some point, I uh, was in charge of a whole bunch of mechanics. And just between you and me, and whoever might be listening, uh, I can't change a tire. I'm not a mechanically inclined person. I was in charge of a bunch of mechanics. I would walk through every day on the aircraft carrier, and they would tell me what they were doing, and I would pretend to comprehend it um, because, like, you know, I know how to drive a car, but I'm not good with an engine. Um, but what I would do and what I would make sure to do is to point at the TV when they're showing pictures of Fallujah and talk to them about how what they're doing that, to this engine that I barely understand is directly attached to what they're seeing on TV with, you know, protecting Marines and, and, and fighting missions and things like that. And they would light up and you could lose an hour real easy having that conversation because fixing an engine is satisfying to somebody who can do it. But fixing an engine in order to make the world a safer place, which is what we would say, is a lot more satisfying. And that was something that they taught me. They're like, you're a junior officer. Don't tell anybody how to fix anything. You don't know. But what you can do is engage people in this mission that we're all in and point out to them, not with a banner when they come home after seven months that they're a hero, but every single day that what they're doing is so intimately attached to what they perceive as heroic on the TV. And I do that in all, all the jobs I've ever had. I try to do that because I think that makes people engage themselves. Yeah, and I think, and from my experience working with you, I, mean, I think you were really good at that. And I think, you know, part of it was, is that first of all, you appreciated the importance of it, number one, right? I think you understood that. You understood that concept based on, on your training and your career. But then you also applied it. And I think to me, that's really important because, you know, like-minded people and having some sort of connection um, always helps me, uh, again, based in our, on our roles uh, in our previous life and what that meant. And I think, I think you're a steward of that. So that's, 
that's and I think I have uh, I have an advantage because I really believe it too. You know, I can't tell a doctor how to help somebody with chronic back pain. It's it's a very frustrating symptom set to deal with because there's not a lot you can do. I can't tell the doctor how to help. I can't tell the MA how to help. Can't tell the nurse how to help. I don't I don't have any kind of clinical expertise, but I can point out to them that just being there for that appointment listening to the patient, giving them compassion, giving them an opinion, maybe giving them a treatment, but just having that interaction provides A, value to that patient, and B, helps to propel the mission of our entire organization, which is to serve our communities and to take care of our friends and neighbors. And that at least, that helps sometimes. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I think you're dead on. I think, like I said, I, I, I personally have had some experience, some positive experiences with that, where I think some organizations did appreciate it, did go out of the way to make sure. And, and you know, it's got to be meaningful, too. It's not like, uh, you know, some organizations where they'll just buy pizza, you know, for the it's it's the daily engagement and showing them the connection between what they're doing and the bigger picture. And I think to your to your I, aviator, that, I, uh, I agree with you but I, never underestimate the power of a pizza party especially if it's one in a contest um it's uh I've, I've ever since i was a kid just the words pizza party inst- instill joy in the heart yeah and but don't get don't get me wrong i've used it what i'm saying is that alone is no, not enough no it's, and yes. it, but i, I pizza pizza And I think that people understand when you do things like that as an organization, and it's hard as you get bigger, you know, Ortho Virginia North used to be Commonwealth Orthopedics, which was smaller. Commonwealth Orthopedics used to be four little groups when you get, which was smaller. As it gets bigger, it's harder to have those kind of deep personal connections with every person. But I do think that the organization understands why we're doing things. Here's a pizza party. So you stop complaining is very, very different from, hey, here's a pizza party because you've all been working your butts off during COVID and we don't want you to have to waste 10 minutes to go out and have food. We're bringing food in and we're going to take a little break and have some celebration. So I think the meaning behind why you do things usually comes through, whether you intend to or not. One of the things that I I uh, wasn't originally going to talk about because it wasn't an issue when we first were going to meet um, is how do you think COVID uh, for organizations long-term, because I don't think this is, this is a one and done. I think this is going to be the new, the new world. How do you think that's going to affect employee engagement moving forward? Um, well, powerfully, um, depending on the organization for goods or for bad. Um, and also, you know, there's some dependence on industry. You know, I have a management team, um, that is all working remote, but, Largely, I have a whole huge group of employees that are all working in an office setting. So there's a disparity there because what you have to do to keep a remote team engaged is different than what you do to keep an an in-person team engaged. The biggest impact that I've seen, though, throughout this COVID um, crisis, and I think for what it's worth, I think our organization has handled it as well as could be handled. And we decided very early on um, at the shareholder level that taking care of our employees was going to be a top priority. And I think that we were able to protect them and we're reaping the benefits about this uh, from this now because we are growing and we are hiring and we are getting a lot of really great candidates. Whereas before COVID-19, there was full employment in Northern Virginia. It was very hard to find people to hire. 
Um, but we decided we were going to try to take care of our employees. We pivoted our entire business model to, uh, to uh, take care of as many patients as we could in this time. Basically, we became an urgent care to keep people out of urgent care and out of hospitals. Those places were dealing with coronavirus. If somebody twists their ankle, sprains their ankle, or breaks their arm, they don't need to go into that high-risk environment. And those people in that high-risk environment don't need to deal with that broken arm. So we kind of changed our entire purpose according to our mission to take care of those people. And it was a great thing to do. But that kind of change that quickly is, is almost devastating to the degree of comfort that people get from their job. You know, human beings, we like yeah. routine. We like things to be the same way. Most of us like, you know, having a turkey sandwich on Tuesday for lunch, you know, that we like things to be normal. And we changed about everything about our business that we could in response to that crisis very, very quickly. And it was very hard to keep people engaged. On top of that, to a degree that I've not known in my professional life, all of the people that worked here we're dealing with tremendous personal stress. I mean, I have three yeah. little kids and the canceling of schools <laughs> upset my life more than almost any single event ever, right? And, and so, uh, yeah. so now you have yeah. a staff that is you know, dealing with this huge personal stress, fearful for their own health and well-being in life, and everything at work is completely different. On top of that, people were laying off people left and right. You know, there's all this financial stress. Um, and, and so it, it, it's very difficult. And there were weeks there where I was communicating with the whole staff, you know, all 600 people every other day, just trying to keep people holding on. At the same time, kind of relentlessly trying to support and nudge and push and lead that middle manager core, those 30 people that kind of run the whole place. Um, and at the same time, trying to manage, um, this is a different podcast, but just managing physicians is a whole different kind of thing. So right. trying to keep yeah. all these people, it was exhausting. Uh, it took a huge toll on, um, on my physical health uh, and, and it was exhausting for the organization. And looking back on it, we have a lot of pride, but all I did was to kind of relentlessly tell people what we are doing and why what we are doing and why. And those 30 people that run the company tried to relentlessly be supportive. Okay, you can't come because you have three kids, you don't have childcare, we'll get somebody else to come, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. And then because we had invested a lot in building up this culture of trust, we basically said, try not to worry about the money, we're going to take care of you, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's, it's super important to us. And at the end of the day, we uh, we reduced everyone's salary twenty percent for a month, and then we restored. We were able to restore it much more quickly than we thought, and it, it was a far less impact on our employees than we feared when it started. But I think telling people the mission, telling people the priorities, that helps to keep them engaged. And in times of stress, over communication <laughs> is impossible. I mean, just keep communicating, keep saying over yeah. and over again, because no one absorbs I, everything when they're stressed. You know, I think I want to I want to stress this point too, because I think no one's ever come to me and said you're communicating too much to <laughs> me. You know, I, that's one thing that's 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 fascinating to me because I don't think you can do that enough, even even without the pandemic. 
I think, you know, people feel if they start feeling isolated, that's where they start going down that path, right? right? Where they, they start getting disengaged. And I think it's, there's a difference between harassing someone and communicating with someone. And I think, I think employees appreciate that. First of all, understand that they're not stupid. First right. thing, right. They, they understand what's going on. Uh, because organizations in the past just assume that their employees don't know what's going on and then communicating to them like they're an adult and treat them like an adult and give them those things that you were like you were providing. Well, I think that's that's true. You know, one of my favorite things to say to young managers and old managers and just general random people on the street is that everybody's the hero of their own movie. And if you realize that and if you take that lesson to your heart, then it makes it a lot easier to deal with them as individual human beings. And if, if you can tie the plot of their own personal movie to the mission that you're trying to accomplish, then they will push themselves in that way. And organizations, I know we like to be harsh, boring organizations. Organizations are people. And what the people yes. at the top of the organization need to remember is that their organization is their people. It's not their patents. It's not their, their facility. It is their people. And this gets back to what we were supposed to be talking about this entire time, which is that the success of the organization is intrinsically tied to the quality, the capability, and the engagement of those people. And so if you invest in those people, you make a more fundamental investment in the success of your organization than if you upgrade your facilities, upgrade your technology, um, even bring in high-powered CEO. The people at the bottom uh, of the pyramid are, are the people that are the place, right? And, and, and again, to, to that point, just to extend that point, that, that's, that's what I think needs to be said over and over again. You can't say that enough, is that if you take care of employees and treat them well, they will take care of the customers, whatever, whoever your customers are, and you will be successful. I've never yeah. heard people say, I love my job, I love my organization, and the organization's failing. That's, that never happens. Right. Well, and if you do that, then you, you, know, you take care of the employees, the employees take care of the customers, the customers take care of the shareholders. And all the things that we normally watch become, you know, result metrics and not really operational metrics. Revenue will come. Yes. Um, I, the the best way to look at that, in my opinion, is you take the standard org chart and you just flip it upside down, right? And yes. it's not you're standing on top of all these people. It's that you're holding them on your shoulders. And that's another thing that the U.S. military does very well. Every commanding officer I ever had when they left said, I really enjoyed working for you, right? Not, yeah. hey, you were good employees. And I think that's the philosophy that, that at least this industry could do with a little more. Yes. And there's no doubt about that. I, the, other, the other point where I think organizations might get off, off trail on the short, the, uh, in employee engagement is the short term versus long term, where they're not thinking long term. Um, a lot of people don't like short term pain. Um, <laughs> I, the exercise analogy, right? In order to get goals, you have to start somewhere. You start small, you build on that. Those are short term. There's going to be some pain, uh, and you're gonna you're gonna have to be committed to it. But you're gonna see the results. I think organizations get fearful, and they re- revert back to thinking uh, short term, narrow minded, and they sacrifice long term. And then they they look back and they're like, oh, we we didn't do enough to sustain and maintain 
what we need to do to be successful long term in organization. Well, if they if they have that kind of realization, then they're ahead of most. But you're you're right. Nobody likes short term pain. Nobody likes pain. I think. Um, but yeah, I mean uh, by pain, I don't mean by you know pain. Like it's like you rip down the muscle to build the muscle back up. Right. Right. That's well, just look at the change management curve, which I know is tattooed in your mind, so I won't draw it, draw it for you, right? But as soon as you change anything, everything gets worse, right? Yeah. And, um, and so the leader's job is really a little bit before that change to all the way through that change, keeping people's eye on where it's going to get better. And if you lose the will halfway through the change and revert back, then you've extended, expended a huge amount of energy, a huge amount of political capital, a huge amount of will, and you've reverted back to where you are. So it makes it just harder the next time, right? And so these you know, personal health and fitness analogies are, are, are perfect in that because every single time you try and, back, and go backwards, it makes it harder the next time. Well, and, and, yeah. and the other reason why I use it is because, as you know, I am uh, Lean Six Sigma practitioner, process improvement leader. And when I come across someone who tells me they want to improve, and then I start giving them ideas or trying to help them, then they're like, what are you doing? And I look at the same way where someone walks into a, into a uh, gym with a cigarette and a cheeseburger in their hand and they're like, <laughs> yeah, I can't understand why I can't lose weight or can't get healthy. It's the same kind of mentality. It's like, yeah, you have to, you got to change that, that mentality, that lifestyle, that attitude, um, and understand that if you want to get to where you, if you say you really want to get to where you think you want to, you have to be committed to that and you have to do things. And this, this is a leadership thing too, as well, but staff as well, where they have to say, you want this to be better, then this is what needs to happen to be better. You can't just complain about it every single day that it doesn't work. What can we do to help you uh, be successful. Yeah. And I think you, I think you see that a lot in organizations with varying degrees of success, right? I yeah. mean, the, the typical manager kind of trope is come with me with a, come to me with a solution, not a problem. That's good. If you have a solution, that's good. If you don't have a solution still, I want to know about the problem, but, um, where I think that, that, uh, change management fa fails kind of tremendously is, is in two areas. And usually it's before the change and after the change. I think, uh, I think a lot of places have enough people who have some sort of project management experience and that they can try to push through the change. Uh, but setting the expectations before of what that change is going to be and what the pain is going to be and what's going to happen. And, uh, that helps to minimize the fall, right? And then after you're done, actually looking back and seeing whether you made a, change, a positive change or not is I think some, uh, the most overlooked part of that entire exercise because we just put so much time and effort into it. We don't wanna know if there's any chance that we didn't make it better. We right. don't wanna know. And what that does is that kind of gives you uh, change fatigue in advance um, for the next change. But uh, the role of the leader throughout that entire process is to keep people focused on the end, right? And, and so organizations should not engage in a change if they don't know the end that they're trying to achieve and if they don't think that they have the will to achieve it. That being said, I know what you're thinking. You can't have just one person push that boulder up the mountain. So the more buy-in you get from everyone on, into that end state, the easier it will be for everyone um, to endure it. But I think you do that before 
um, more yeah, than during. Yeah, do that before. I mean, you have to be, you know, you have to be in a condition where you're ready. You know, like your organization now is yeah. everyone's committed. They've seen, uh, they've seen what's going on now, and they're ready for change because they're tired of having this conversation over and over again, and they're ripe for change. And I think once that and luckily. And the nice thing is, because this is a well-led organization that we're talking about here, is that in planning the change, you have engaged all those people that are most affected by it. So they feel ownership of that end state and they feel ownership of the thought process. You're not just telling them, okay, tomorrow we're going to change everything. You said, we have a problem, help us fix it. And if if they feel that ownership, it will succeed. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And with combined with the fact that they see the value in what is going to happen to their life as well and how much better it's going to be. I always tell people, and I used to tell nurses all the time uh, when we would do these uh, process mapping sessions, I asked nurses who became a nurse so that they can enter data into a computer. And <laughs> no nurse became a nurse to enter data into a computer. What they became nurses for was to take care of people. So what you want to do is you want to help them be able to do that as much as they can and minimize the other stuff. So they're not running around all day and they're focused on taking care of people because that's why they became nurses. And I think that's where you have to re-communicate their value. They're hired because they can, they're compassionate. Uh, obviously they have a skill set. But I think it's not because they're good at putting data in there. You know, we always we always turn managers into people uh, that we think are going to be managers when they're they're not because they don't have all those other skills, right? Right. Well, I think there's an, in general kind of a lack of awareness of the skill sets that make a good manager um, uh, a good manager anyway. So we'll take the best individual performer and put them in right. charge. Exactly. Not always a great move. The other thing about your nurse's example, though, is that those nurses have a tremendous amount of value to the patient, but also a tremendous amount of value to the organization. And their skill set does not include entering data into the computer. So from an organizational point of view, that project that you're working on is super well aligned because I don't want somebody that has the training, the expertise and the cost of a nurse having to do this data entry when somebody else could do that data entry. And I think that telling folks during the project over and over again or demonstrating to them how, how well this change will align with their own goal, which is the getting back to more of your time spent with patient care, is a great way to engage them. And I used to know, I used to know the number, the percentage that a nurse on their shift would spend uh, interacting with the patient. And it was an atrocious number because of because they were torn in so many different directions. And this is, you know, finding supplies from a pillow, you know, to a syringe, uh, to data entry that they spent very little time interacting, you know, with the patient. And I think to your point, again, you're not paying the nurse for that. So that's a cost that the organization's absorbing because no one else, you you don't have anyone else doing it right now. And it's not best suit in person to do it to, to begin with as you well, and that and that gets back to something that you brought up a few minutes ago right which was uh 
the the degree to which uh, organizations resist change because of the perception of of, of short term pain, right? right. Uh, and that's that's really worrisome when you hear it in an organization. We can't afford to do this right now. Now is not the right time, right? Maybe in another year, maybe in another quarter. We'll just do this for right now. You know, at some point in time, uh, a nurse or a physician was said it was told, "Why don't you take the responsibility of entering this stuff in the computer, and we'll revisit that in a quarter?" And that was like 14 years ago. And <laughs> and so it's it's never the right time to change things. And I'm not here to tell you that every project needs to go right now. Yes, but uh, you cannot put things off um, indefinitely. Because if you're waiting for the absolute right time to change something fundamental to your business, it will never come. Yeah, there are lots of excuses of companies circling it, the drain for 40 years. The same thing is if you wait till you have enough funds to have kids, you'll never have kids. But then you'll be rich forever. Right. But that's the <laughs> other issue, right? That's it's correct. Like yeah. You're always waiting. You're always waiting. I used to say this to operations. You know how uh, healthcare is run. It's there's never a good time to run projects like that. They're not sitting at a desk. Right. There's never a good time. It's I used to say this. Okay, you tell me when you when operations is slow, and they're like, <laughs> well, it's never slow. I'm like, exactly. So when is that? There is no time. What you have to do is figure out how to be as least disruptive to the organization while doing these projects. Obviously. Yeah. Well, and it's a it's a management culture issue, exactly. right? I like to tell everyone to break their time up into three boxes. I cleverly name these boxes, box one, box two, and box three. Really? Right? And box one, yeah, it's true. Box one is called manage the present. And for a manager, it's what we would call your job, right? All the things that you do, putting out fires and all that kind of stuff. Uh, box two is called examine the past. Ask why, 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 why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And box three is called create the future. And create the future doesn't mean write next week's schedule. Create the future is think about the way we write schedules and should it be fundamentally different, right? And everybody needs to break up their entire day into those three boxes and they should have a goal for what percentages it is. And maybe your place is a real catastrophe and you have huge managerial challenges. It still needs to be 90% box one, 5% box two to 5% box three. The ideal that I set for my people is, uh, is 70 and then either 10, 20 or 20, 10, depending on if I think that we're going backwards more or forwards more. But, um, the, the point of that for the manager is I need to do this every day. I need to set aside some amount of time every single day to ask why I'm spending time and energy on something and some amount of time to think about a fundamentally different future and whether or not it would be better or worse and how we might get there. Because if you don't, if you, if you say, okay, I'll do box one Monday through Thursday and then box two and three on Friday, it never ever comes because Friday will have a fire that's burned out. But if you spend your whole day putting out fires, box one, and not any time trying to figure out why it's on fire, box two, or do we even need this thing at all, box three, then you will spend your whole life putting out fires. And, and so teaching that, teaching that um, is important, but also giving them the safety to use that time. Because somebody's going to call me and say, my manager didn't solve my problem today. They said it had to wait till tomorrow. And that's unacceptable. And you have to back that up. Nobody takes risks, chances, or improves the organization if they're scared about being fired, right? And a high-performing organization does not fire people for making mistakes. Fires people for failing to learn from their mistakes. 
And so if you're gonna have a management call, uh, climate where they're constantly focused to some degree on eliminating waste and redundancy, box two, and creating the future, box three, then you need to keep them safe so that they can do that work. That's well said. Uh, I, I like that concept. So let me ask you this. From, from an engagement standpoint, um, are there any other topics or specific concepts you wanted to touch on? Well, I mean, we could go, we could go all day, but I, I think we covered, you know, kind of what's near and dear to my heart, which is that the, the people that are in, in healthcare, the people that are closest to the patient, the people that are, that are actually executing on your mission are the most important people in the organization. And so resources, time, energy, and effort needs to be spent to enable those people to A, be really great at their jobs, but B, to really, really care about their jobs because yes. it will make them better. It will make the organization better. It will make the patient better, faster, and make them happier. And it'll overall make the organization more successful. You know, and we, there's lots of things besides straight up revenue that we didn't even talk about. Turnover rates in healthcare are huge because yeah. we burn people out, right? Then new training lag time is huge because we're constantly hiring more people. Recruiting fees are huge, right? Wage inflation in Northern Virginia is huge because people know that the only way to get a job in an organization that barely values them is to leave and then come back. So the more that you can turn your enterprise into something that the employees feel that they own, the easier your life will be as a leader and as a manager. Um, and you know, I'm happy to come and talk about any of those things more later. If you let want. me, so let me um, just add a few things here. Organizations with high engagement reduce both turnover and hiring costs and disengaged employees are a major factor contributing to high employee turnover. Uh, this I really like because I think this goes unnoticed. Employees who are engaged at work are more likely to be productive on a consistent basis, which leads to more revenue. Companies with high with a high level of engagement report 22% higher productivity, according, according to Gallup data. And I think, again, if you're smart and you are, and you are committed, to those things that we've talked about, whatever your mission is, that has to play a large role in that commitment. Because if it doesn't, you're not gonna you're not gonna be committed. It's just not gonna happen. So uh, I want to thank you very much. It was excellent. I wanted to thank uh, Justin Sakia. We uh, had some technical difficulties at the end, and he was pulled away on a call. But I really want to thank him again for his insight. I uh, wanted to wrap up and just let you know that uh, I can help you unlock your organization's potential to implement the right solution. Ask yourself, you know, what are your pain points? Are you willing to do something different? Are you, and are you committed to change? What are your customers saying, which is really important. By providing data-driven analytics to determine the root cause of any issue, I can insist in answering these questions. And as always, <clears throat> remember and never forget, as Rush from the song Grand Design stated, so much style without substance, so much stuff without style. It's hard to recognize the real thing. It comes along once in a while. Take care. Thank you.